0: I'm Andrew Denary with the Space Foundation, and you're listening to the Space For You podcast. Space For You is designed to tell the stories of the amazing people who make today's space exploration possible. Today, we are joined by Dylan Taylor, who is an active pioneer in the space exploration industry as a CEO, investor, thought leader, and futurist. Currently, Dylan serves as chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings, a multinational space holding firm that acquires and integrates leading space exploration enterprises globally. He previously served as a director for Fortune 500 company UMB Bank, and is the former global president of Colliers International. Dylan is also the founder of the nonprofit organization Space for Humanity, and a co-founding patron of the Commercial Space Flight Federation. He has been cited by Harvard University, Space News, the BBC, PitchBook, CNBC, CNN, and others as having played a seminal role in the growth of the private space industry. And that's the abridged version. We <laughs> thank you for joining us today, Dylan.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. Appreciate it very much.
0: So your professional experience prior to starting Voyager was in finance and real estate. So what inspired you to focus on space?
1: You know, it's sort of maybe the other way around. I I think I heard um, Jeff Bezos once remark that, you know, he got into the e-commerce business really as a means to create the resources to sort of feed his space passion. And uh, I certainly can relate to that. I mean, I... I uh, appreciate business. I think business can be a force for good. It it often isn't, but I think it can be. And the thing I like about global business and the public markets is it's sort of borderless. It really, capital transcends nationality and borders. So I I like that element of it, and I like having a platform to to try to impact uh, things that I believe are important in the world. Um, so I like that element of it but I would tell you you know finance real estate those kinds of industries at least for my taste aren't as enlightened if I can use that term as what I see in the space industry and you know space is a really special industry with I think really unique uh, individuals so long story short I really approach my business career uh, as a means to an end uh, and I, by that I mean I wanted to create the skills and the platform and the resources to do great things and things that I really believe in. And space has always been a lifelong passion. And I'm in my 40s, late 40s now, but about, I would say, you know, seven, eight years ago, really started turning my attention more and more to space. And and now, of course, I'm I'm full-time focused on it, uh, which is very uh, enjoyable and and, uh, just uh, very fortunate to be in a position to focus on what I
0: love. Space was formerly dominated by government agencies, but increasingly has become the domain of commercial businesses. How do you think commercial space and government agencies harmoniously contrast and complement each other?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, obviously the governments of the world, US being the most dominant, but JAXA and Japan and ESA and Europe, they've really been the main client base uh, for the space industry historically. Uh, obviously, that's changing with the advent of commercial space, and uh, it's also, I would say, changing with the advent of how space is being looked at from, from nation-state points of view as well. I mean, I'm, I'm really happy to see the announcement recently with the Artemis Accords, uh, with more sort of global uh, cooperation around uh, the upcoming Moon mission. Uh, so I think it's evolving, but I think that the government as a client has been and will continue to be... You know, probably the most important influence on space uh, from an economic standpoint. But I I think over time, you know, let's say 80% of the market is government, 20% commercial at this point. Uh, I think over time that, you know, that'll get closer to 50-50. But uh, but obviously it plays a, a critical role. Yeah, commercial
0: space, I suppose, is serving some different purposes as well. Kind of like with satellites and things like that, small sats, you know, there's a lot of other purposes as well now. And as far as there's also, you know, commercial space travel there on the horizon, would you liken today's commercial space sector to a modern-day space race uh, with companies competing and driving each other to achieve goals more quickly?
1: I would. Yeah, I would. I mean, I think there is some some friendly competition and and maybe some unfriendly competition here and there as well. But, no, I think, um, look, I think the new space phenomena, the commercial space focus, Uh, that I I believe very strongly and I think is built on this notion that um, everything should be looked at from first principles. You know, take rocket reusability. You know, I've got some very dear friends in the space industry that run large space companies that, you know, were saying up until maybe even six months before uh, SpaceX demonstrated rocket reusability that it was foolhardy and it would never happen. You know, so I, I think what New Space has hopefully demonstrated or commercial is demonstrated is some of these, you know, concepts are possible when you look at it with a fresh perspective. Uh, now, that all being said, there's a role for you know more pragmatic, uh, more traditional space. You know, I, I look at ULA; they've had 139 launches in a row without a failure. That's amazing. And you're not gonna you're not gonna get that out of your garage, right? You're 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 just not so. There's a role, I think, for each perspective in the industry, and I think, ideally, uh, sort of commercial space would be pushing the envelope on, on innovation and, and sort of the, the visionary part of the industry and traditional space would be reining that in a bit to say, okay, well, that's great. How do we make
0: it work? In your opinion, what are the most exciting things happening right now? Uh, you know, what, what initiatives do you think have the best chance of being realized in the near future?
1: I think a couple couple things. Obviously, um, commercial space travel, I think, is is something that is going to happen. Obviously, we're going to have the commercial crew launch on May 27th, SpaceX sending NASA astronauts to the ISS. But I think also elements of space tourism should be realized later this year in 2020, whether that's Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin. Uh, The thing that I'm most excited about with respect to that is I think it'll be very exciting and energizing for people outside the industry, kind of everyday citizens to to see, you know, non-NASA trained astronauts going to space on a regular basis. Uh, So I I think that's great. Uh, Obviously, continued uh, reusability is critical for the industry. We should get a Starship launch out of SpaceX, hopefully within the next 12 months or less. Uh, which could demonstrate some really interesting reusable technology. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about all of that. You know, there's some things that are a little bit edgier, things like space manufacturing, the, the Arconaut mission that made in space is, is an important part of uh, demonstrating the ability to manufacture and assemble things like satellites in space. I think that's super interesting. And, you know, one of the things that people I, I don't think are aware of is the infrastructure bill which is likely to be passed in the U.S. later this year, Uh, and I say likely because it seems to be a bipartisan issue that that folks can agree on, you know, round numbers, if that's $3 trillion, you know, space has been identified as an infrastructure category. And, you know, what I'm hearing is somewhere between, you know, 15 and 20% of that infrastructure bill could be space. And if that's the case, that could be really interesting because there's some really interesting space infrastructure projects that could be funded well, that's, that's
0: great. So and you'd mentioned Made in Space. In uh, 2017, you co-designed a gravity meter with that company, Made in Space, that was 3D printed on the International Space Station. It was a fairly basic instrument to cue astronauts that they've left gravitational environment. But would you say there was a greater symbolic value to that achievement?
1: Oh, yeah. No, for sure. And that was the reason we were doing it. Uh, I knew the Made in Space founders, terrific entrepreneurs, and, and really were Uh, You know, just had great energy and I loved what they were doing. And so I was acting sort of as an informal mentor to them and I said, well, look, how how can I help? And they said, well, we're looking to demonstrate sort of commercial demand for this, do you have any ideas? And then, of course, I I thought to myself, wow, it'd be great to actually commission something. And the way I was thinking about it is, how can we create something symbolic, as you mentioned, that would create, you know, I, I call them dinner table conversations. And again, you want, you know, the 12-year-old around the dinner table with the family to say, did you know that they actually manufactured or 3D printed an object in space? And I remember doing the so-called print ceremony, that's when you actually transmit the ones and zeros to the ISS, and I did that in front of a middle school. And you know, I'm trying to explain to them that, okay, I'm going to hit this button, and ones and zeros are going to be transmitted through, you know, through the ether, so to speak. Uh, be received at the space station, and out the other side is going to be an item that we're manufacturing. And their minds were just blown, just totally blown. And, you know, within hours we had a video of the NASA astronauts spinning the object in in zero gravity on the space station. So uh, I just think those are the kinds of things that lend inspiration and really, you know, engage uh, people in in the community. Right. Yeah, it's relatable and brings space down to Earth.
0: Exactly. Uh, so you, uh, you launched Voyager Holdings in fall 2019. What advantages does Voyager offer to space startups that it acquires?
1: Yeah, so uh, startups is probably not exactly the right term because we're only acquiring companies that are uh, mature enough to have you know, substantial revenue and profit and cash flow. So we're, we're, these are companies typically past the startup stage. Okay. Uh, but the, fu- the fundamental premise is that the industry has done a reasonably good job of funding early-stage companies that used to be, I think, a blockage within our industry. And that's why I spend a lot of my time trying to focus on early-stage uh, angel capital. But I think where the industry is stuck now is really a lot of companies lack scale. We, we really, as an industry, lack scale. We have the very large companies at the top. We have the startups, as you mentioned, but really not medium to large size companies in between Hmm. so fundamentally Voyager is about creating an ecosystem by acquiring majority control so we're we're acquiring more than 51 percent of the equity uh, of highly capable companies and then helping scale them to the next level uh, within a larger framework so for example if you had a you know the first acquisition was Altius Space Machines Uh, I think you probably know John Goff who's a you know, a visionary within on-orbit servicing Uh, but imagine acquiring other companies related to on-orbit servicing and creating a highly capable on-orbit capability Uh, and then you marry that with a launch capability and you marry that with a ground station capability Uh, and we do intend to take the company public. We've told uh, folks that we intend to do that in late 2021 or early 2022 and I think that's a really exciting format as well uh, because then people can kind of own a, a, a piece of the space race, so to speak, which is really, you know, it's really Virgin Galactic is the only game in town right now if you want to own a, a piece of commercial space. Hmm. So it's kind of
0: like uh, creating almost a commercial space agency unto itself. Huh?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the thing I love about it is the entrepreneurs can still be entrepreneurs. So they get all the benefits of having large company back office you know having a national security apparatus and a dc presence and you know all the things that the big companies have but yet they can still be entrepreneurs and innovate and and not be a badged employee but be a equity holder and i think that creates uh, you know the right kind of incentives
0: so, um, if your you know ethos for acquisitions is to have companies in your portfolio that are kind of mutually beneficial and synergistic, what other types of companies would you like to get in there to kind of create that greater whole?
1: Yeah, one area we're really interested in right now is, I'll call it planetary science, for lack of a better word, but this is IT and first principles technology around what do you do when you get to the moon? How do you... Um, manipulate the resources on the moon, Uh, how do you extract the right resources from uh, the moon, Mars, elsewhere, because if you look at Artemis and you look at a lot of the missions that are planned, uh, we're really focused on the transportation, you know, the human-rated life support, all those things, which is critical, Uh, but we, I don't think spend enough time thinking about what are the technologies to actually make those missions useful. And so I'm really Excited about, you know planetary resource planetary science. You know, this isn't lassoing a You know a platinum asteroid uh, that, That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about very practical. What do you do when you get to the moon? So I would say that's an area. I'm really excited about and then uh, space-based manufacturing I still think that uh, has legs uh, and I still think that's a really important part and of course on orbit servicing enables your ability to, you know, create sustainable uh, space manufacturing capability as well. So I think those, those are very much complementary.
0: You've mentioned before the concept of having industry and utilities to supply space travelers essentially being established in free space. Can you explain that for our listeners?
1: Yeah, it's sort of a, you know, O'Neillian concept named after Gerard K. O'Neill, who was a Princeton professor who sort of wrote the book, literally. Uh, on this called The High Frontier, a book, by the way, that inspired Jeff Bezos, as I understand it, he he cited that in his high school valedictorian speech as being a a book that changed his life and his outlook. But the fundamental concept is, why would you climb out of a gravity well uh, just to climb back into another gravity well? It's a fair question. Obviously, we need a permanent presence on the moon. Obviously, Elon is... Very focused on Mars, and I, I think that's I think that's great. But if we're talking about heavy infrastructure, if we're talking about you know colonies, or we're talking about space-based power or space-based manufacturing. The most logical place to put that is outside the gravity well, uh, and and do that in free space. And so there's a lot of uh, stable orbits uh, called Lagrangian points. If people research those, they'll see there's L3 and L5 and other uh, stable orbits, um, you know, in our Earth-Luna system here that you can actually put infrastructure and, uh, you know, keep it in a stable orbit. And then once you're creating infrastructure and you're creating resources at those orbits, then it becomes more of a distribution problem to get those resources where you want them, as opposed to a rocket problem. Because even on the Moon you know, the moon has gravity, obviously, and you, you've got to overcome that. Uh, it's less than Earth, and it's less than Mars, but it's still it's still substantial. In my experience, you know,
0: when something's really difficult, and you're, you're kind of banging your head against the wall, and it seems insurmountable, and then all of a sudden you get this breakthrough, like this aha moment, you know, and everything becomes easier, and there's more possibilities. In, in your opinion, Does that sort of breakthrough exist for these initiatives like going to Mars and returning to the moon? And if so, what's that hurdle and what do you think the solution is?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I think the the primary aha has been uh, reusability. uh, Because with reusability, you can do things, interesting things like getting propellant to space uh, cheaper and easier. And if we can build a fuel depot in space, then, you know, getting into deep space becomes much more practical. So I think that's all interesting. You know, I think we're still lacking infrastructure, uh, space-based power, space-based communication. You know, all the things, uh, when you think about the infrastructure we have here on Earth, you know, that's still, in my opinion, lagging uh, our ambitions uh, for space. So I think those are, those are key things. And then, you know, Buzz Aldrin, I think, has said this and, and others, you know, I think we need to reassess our tolerance for risk. Sure. You know, when, w- when we opened up, you know, the Western frontier and other frontiers as, as humans, I don't think we had sort of a zero six sigma, zero fatality mindset. Right. And had had we had that, I'm not sure we would have uh, expanded, you know, as as we have. So I think, you know, part of it has to be Everything needs to be human rated, everything needs to be as safe as possible, but you know, you take commercial air flight uh, as an example, there are accidents, and yeah. when there are accidents we don't shut the commercial aviation system down for years. Uh, so I, I think that's an important part of it, honestly. I think that's held us back a bit. Um, it certainly has increased the cost dramatically because if you, if you insist on Six Sigma reliability you know, it probably quintuples the cost. You know, the difference between four sigma and six sigma is, is probably uh, it's probably a 5x uh, cost multiplier.
0: Mm. That's a good point. What do you think, would you say, is a realistic timeline for humans returning to the moon?
1: Well, 2024 is, is a heavy lift, <laughs> no, no pun yeah. intended. I, I think it's unrealistic, frankly, and it doesn't mean that the people who are saying 2024 are being disingenuous or don't know what they're talking about. That's not, that's not what I mean when I say that. But I just think realistically, it's uh, very difficult. So we'll get lunar missions, you know, missions going around the moon and interesting things. But humans on the moon, I think, is probably 2026. Uh, fighting chance for 2025, but I think 2024 is, is not going to happen.
0: Obviously, Mars is a lot further. And as you mentioned, there's the, the question of resources going those kinds of distances. Any guesses on when humans might be on Mars?
1: Well, I have it as 2032. Uh, that's kind of where I'm predicting. But, you know, Elon is, he's very focused on this. It's his life's work uh, among, you know, other projects. But I would say I've been, I've been wrong before about Elon's ability to get things <laughs> done. You know, he, he's also been wrong, and, you know, he, he's, I think, somewhere between what Elon thinks he can do and what others think he can't do has been the truth, if that makes sense. So, right. you know, I think 2032 is, is realistic, so that's 12 years from now, but I, I'm in the camp that says Elon probably does it before a nation state does, uh, and I know a lot of people disagree with that, but I, I'm, I'm in that camp.
0: I could see that. You know, he's he seems to be you know pretty willing to take risks, like you mentioned before.
1: Yes, he's crazy about taking risks. I, I I don't know if I admire it because to me it's it's too much risk. But so far, it's really it's really paid off for him. True. So.
0: In 2017, you founded Space for Humanity, uh, which is a nonprofit organization with the goal of democratizing space. To achieve this, the organization plans to send a diverse group of thousands of citizen astronauts to space in the coming years. Could you define your vision of democratized space for us?
1: Sure. I mean, really, the, the impetus for that was commercial space is going to happen. Space tourism is going to happen. Uh, whether we like it or not, that's going to occur. But I'm I'm very fearful that if the first you know thousand people on those flights are you know Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, you know not to to pick on them, but if that's the the cohort, I think we're going to lose an entire generation of of citizens who who just see that as the you know billionaire club and and not for them, and I think that would be really unfortunate. So what I really am committed to doing is making sure. Uh, and Space for Humanity, just to be clear, it's a non-profit, but they're they're paying full freight for these flights. So they're not looking for free flights. I believe in, in the you know free market system, and we want to pay full freight. But what I do want and what I am asking for is to be early in the queue, not necessarily the first flight, but within the first couple of flights, so that that narrative can be, you know, look at these amazing kind of everyday citizens that are committed to going to space, coming back, and the covenant is, we'll send you, you know, no cost to you, but when you come back, you need to impact the world in a in a positive way. So it's sort of a a, a fellowship, if you will. And we also want to select people from, you know, different countries and different backgrounds and really demonstrate that this space is for everybody. In addition to the human spaceflight piece of the organization, and Rachel Lyons is the executive director. I've just uh, now uh, have a role on the board, but she's really running it. She's she's amazing. Just an amazing uh, young leader in the industry. But what she's really focused on is creating more of a movement around democratizing space. And they've crushed it because not everyone's going to be able to go to space, but everyone can kind of get behind uh, the notion of spaces for everybody. And just the last point is, you know, they're really focused on the message that the webinar series that they're focused on right now is called To Space for Earth. And I think that's a really important message is that you know, Space benefits Earth, and by virtue of kind of reimagining what it means to be human, we can make you know our experience here on Earth even better. And I think in times of COVID and, and other challenges we have, I think that's an important message. Um, so that organization is just doing amazing work. They're getting literally over a million people engaged on Facebook and their social postings and Instagram and everything else. So it really has become, uh, I'm proud to say, uh, very much a social movement. That's excellent.
0: I think it's really cool. Have any of the citizen astronauts been chosen yet?
1: No, we haven't chosen our first crew. We've gotten several thousand applicants from, I think at last count, 82 countries. Oh. But the selection process, we, we want to make sure when we select the first crew, we can say they're flying on this date on this platform. Oh. And unfortunately, no one's flying right now, of course, and we don't have a date certain, and we don't have a spacecraft certain and so we want that announcement to be highly credible, to say, here's our first crew, here's when they're going, and here's the vehicle that they're flying on. So I'm hoping that's going to be later this year, you know, assuming that COVID doesn't get in the way of either Virgin or Blue announcing commercial flights. You know, when you were talking about the diversity,
0: uh, space occupations are traditionally pretty hard to attain. Does the democratization of space include people not in traditional STEM roles? And if so, uh, what are the kind of nontraditional skill sets that Space for Humanity is looking for in citizen astronauts?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. No, thanks for asking that. No, it's all different types. So artists, poets, writers, um, teachers, musicians, you name it. Uh, all we ask, they have to tie back to one of the U.N. Uh, sustainable development goals, of which there's 17, I believe. So they need to say how they're going their project, when they come back, is going to impact one of those metrics. Uh, but yeah, we've got, I think our latest one, I just saw it yesterday, was a Ugandan taxi driver who actually drove one of the space celebrities. I don't know who that would have been, but he... he he cited that and said he was so inspired about, about their conversation and he had heard about Space for Humanity that he wanted to be part of that. And so he applied, you know. And so those are the kinds of things. And that, that's what we want, right, Andrew? We want that kind of engagement from the world around space.
0: Right. And
1: um, so I, I think that's, if we do nothing else but just get, you know, Ugandan uh, everyday citizens excited about space, you know, I think, I think that's a win.
0: Absolutely. I mean, they'll come back and talk of the wonders and, <laughs> yeah, that, that, you know, it really does bring it down to earth for everybody, you know, literally and metaphorically. Indeed. You know, you mentioned coronavirus previously. There. Um, there's been a lot of increased interest and investment in space in recent years, both in government and commercial sectors. How much and in which ways do you foresee coronavirus impacting those aspirations and, that have been building momentum?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I'll give you two answers. If we're on the path of recovery now, I think it's going to be more fiscal impact, more delay to some of the contracting maybe, because obviously some of the government agencies are less adroit at working from home, just because they're not set up to, to do that as effectively. So I think it's more delay under this current, you know, situation. However, if we get another fall flare-up, which you know many people think is likely, and we get another shutdown, I'm worried about that, because I think the economy is just barely hanging on as it is with what's happened. I think if we get a second body blow, then I, I think all bets are off, because at that point, you, you have to prioritize and you know, as passionate as, as you and I are about space. It's pretty low-hanging fruits uh, in a budgetary cycle when there's not enough money to go around. Um, so I, I do worry about that. And then, of course, in kind of the venture capital world, pretty much everything is frozen right now. Uh, Voyager's really not. Our model's different because we're, as I said, doing majority control. So we'll actually announce another acquisition probably, uh, probably here in a couple of weeks or so. But for most most traditional venture capital, that's you know that's really essentially shut down right now. And I think we need you know more stability in the economy before that's going to open back up.
0: Uh, so, do you think that commercial space is possibly more insulated from economic downturns than government agencies, or is it kind of all all pain all around? Kind of,
1: I I think it's probably more vulnerable, actually. Uh, just because their capital sources are a bit more fickle. And by that, I mean, you know, it's really the VC the community. But, yeah, I think I think there's risk all around. Uh, I am optimistic about this infrastructure bill that we, we talked about a, a little bit ago. You know, infrastructure is a little bit different than programs, right? That's more, hey, we need space-based power as an example. So that's more of a long-term view. But I, I think... I think there's some risk, Andrew. I really do. I, I'm an optimist. I'd like to think that, you know, we're out of the woods, but it's kind of hard to make that argument just looking at the practicality of, of where we are. I, I don't know what state you, you live in. I live in Colorado. Same here. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's open for business right now. No one's wearing masks. The parks are packed. So, you know, the the scientist in me says that that's, you know, that's not going to end well, but, uh, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see.
0: That's a good point. Well, um, you were talking about infrastructure, and uh, just last month the president signed an executive order regarding kind of mineral rights, I guess, on the moon. (laughs) And I was curious, as that seems to conflict a little bit with the 1967 uh, Outer Space Treaty, how does that, that jibe, do you think, you know, space is kind of seen as this borderless thing, and we're talking about democratization, do you think there's any potential conflict
1: there? Yeah, I do. You know, it's interesting. I, first of all, I think the policy, the space-based policy traditionally has been emerging from the Cold War, and it it uh, was written 40, 50 years ago in many cases, and it isn't very practical, doesn't meet our needs today. So I, I think universally people think space policy and uh, treaties and things like that need to be reformed. But, you know, I was involved with With many others in the Space Act that was passed, I guess now four years ago now, and you know China wasn't a party to that agreement, obviously, and so you have to ask yourself, if not all of the key players in the world are a party to a an agreement, does you know what does that mean exactly? Right? Right. Is it is it enforceable, or is it are you just setting yourself up for conflict? So, you know, I, I applaud the administration in terms of focusing on it as an issue, but I'm, you know, I just go back to the ISS, and granted China's not part of the ISS, but I think the ISS is one of the best things humans have ever done, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we're flying to the ISS, we meaning Americans, on Russian rockets, you know, at least until uh, May 27th, So, so I think it transcends politics in many respects, and I think we need to, in my opinion, make sure that the sort of commercial elements of space are more collaborative because otherwise what's going to end up happening is one group of people are going to say this document governs another group of people are going to say this document governs and there are no courts in space right so that's just going to lead to you know some kind of military conflict so I think it's important to to really focus on uh, trying to get all parties to the table and that's why again I really commend the Artemis Accords I think those are the right kinds of frameworks. To uh, to try to address these issues. That's excellent. Well, um, I, I think that's
0: about the questions I had. Um, but you know, I want to offer the podium to you. Is there anything in particular that you know I didn't ask that I should have?
1: <laughs> oh no, I think Andrew, amazing job. I think we covered everything. Thank you so much. This has been uh, this has been great. All right. Well, thank you for your time
0: today, Dylan. It's it's been a real pleasure, and th- that concludes this episode of the Space Foundation Space for You podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Play. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, our website, spacefoundation.org, where you can also learn about the various ways you can support the Space Foundation. On all of these outlets and more, it's our goal to inspire, educate, connect, and advocate for the space community. Because of the Space Foundation, we will always have space for you. Thanks for listening.